Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Krauss, Licensed Professional Counselor. In today's episode, we are going to be talking all things dementia prevention. Are you worried about memory loss and dementia risk? This new book by Drs. Emily Klyansky, MD, and Mitchell Klyansky, PhD, will help you lessen your worry and figure out what you need to do. We're going to talk about all of that. Doctors Kleonskis are a physician and a neuropsychologist couple who have cared for their patients with dementia, created a test used by doctors to measure cognitive function, and have treated more than 25,000 patients with cognitive impairment. In this book, Dementia Prevention, they combine the most current scientific findings about Alzheimer's disease and other dementias with their experience to present a practical guide that empowers you to improve your brain's future. This book skips the fads and the unsupported claims of advertised products and fringe theories. Instead, the authors guide you through a science-based tour of dementia, including how your brain works and how its function is affected by everything from blood circulation and blood pressure to sugar levels, medications, vision, and hearing. You will learn how your activity level, weight, habits, mental outlook, and social engagement may affect your likelihood of developing dementia. And they are a great pair to ask questions to and they also have a website uh, that we're going to talk about toward the end of the interview very informative and engaging so even if you're a young person as they say you can start working on preventing dementia today if you are in the mental health care field and you are looking for a medical billing service try out therapist billing services www.therapistbillingservicesllc.com it's a billing service created by therapists for therapists to help you have time to do what you do best, which is psychotherapy, while having somebody else handle all of the billing, denials, rejections, and even verification of benefits so that you make sure that you get paid for the hard work that you're doing. TherapistBillingServicesLLC.com. All right, let's get to the interview. Welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast, Doctors Emily and Mitchell Kleonsky. I'm so glad to have you here on the show. Thanks, Paul. It's great to be with you today. Indeed. Absolutely. So as uh, everyone knows who you are, since I've already kind of read your credentials, so we can just jump right in here. Uh, The topic of the day is, of course, dementia prevention, using your head to save your brain, which is your new book that was just coming out here on Johns Hopkins University Press. And uh, I've so far been very, very impressed with it. And uh, I think it's a, a good book that a lot of people need to be reading, especially uh, if you're over the age of 50, um, when your odds for dementia start increasing. Um, so thank you for writing it. Well, let me tell you one thing right up front. We want people to start reading in their teens and 20s because some of the things actually begin much earlier. By the time you're in your 50s, you're sort of trying to catch the train. It's not past you yet, but earlier is better. Okay, that's that's great to know. So, yeah, I, I guess that would make sense because you covered, I don't even know how many factors in here. I can't even count. Um, that oh, could 20. lead. 20, okay. I, I, I guess I could have counted, but you, you've covered a lot of factors of lifestyle that actually long-term habits can lead to a higher risk of dementia. And I think uh, there's a lot to be said about our lifestyle 
And, and obviously we know that for different types of medical outcomes, such as diabetes and heart disease and um, things like that. But I, I think that we've got to start defining here. We, I'm going to start asking questions about dementia and Alzheimer's and these sort of things, because I think there's a lot of myths and misunderstanding about how the physical body affects your brain and vice versa. And that is what you're covering here with these risk factors and then the positive factors, of course, and the screening that you've developed uh, that anybody could utilize and then take to their uh, doctor or neurologist. And actually, before we go further, I do want to say that I am gathering that this, according to what we found, is the first evidence-based prevention book for uh, all, uh, for dementia. Is that correct? It is, absolutely. We looked at all the data coming from major organizations like the World Health Organization, like the Lancet Commission in the UK, and they looked at all the research and figured out that these factors, these 20, in fact, are specifically proven by good research science to actually prevent dementia, all-cause dementia. So if people actually started young enough in their lives following what we advocate in this book, we could actually prevent one of every two cases of dementia that happen in the United States. One out of every two could be prevented. So that's basically wow. our statistic, because what we've done here is split the difference. Lancet Commission in the UK had 12 factors that they had found reduced the likelihood by about 40%. Those 12 factors were then applied in the United States on the health and retirement study. And what they came up with is an estimate of about 60%, to which they then added another 2.5% based on hearing loss which up to that point had not been looked at at all by the people over in the United Kingdom. So we said 40 to 60%, one out of two is a nice number to stick with. And that, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I guess this is adding on to uh, something I was reading recently, that most diseases that are caught or have people have in the United States can be actually prevented with lifestyle, not 100%, but uh, in a reasonable uh, percentage decrease. And, and also you say that in this book, which is, um, you quote, of course, Benjamin Franklin, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I think if we, uh, if we instituted that in the U.S., we would have quite a different culture. But um, I definitely think that you, you talk about this as sort of like fire prevention. You know, you can do all the things in this book that you've talked about all these different factors that affect your brain and, and the uh, possibility of getting dementia, but you can't 100% say you'll never get it because there's some other factors that we could be genetic or different things that aren't easily measured that could affect the brain. Is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. You know, we can't control who our parents are, which is something I've regretted, you know, many days in my life. But anyway, you know, obviously we can only control what we're going to do with that inheritance. And even then, we can't control what we call those epigenetic factors. In other words, what are the changes that our environment makes to our gene code in a permanent way that's going to affect us long term? So maybe I started off life not having sleep apnea, didn't have it when I was a kid, didn't have it as a teenager. But somehow through middle age, I started to not be able to get enough oxygen into my brain when I was sleeping at night because 
Maybe my airway got smaller as I put weight on. Maybe as I lost my estrogen when I was 42 years old and I didn't have the flexibility in my airway muscles that I had when I did have estrogen in my body. So I developed sleep apnea later on. But those changes can produce epigenetic changes to our genetic code as well as to our body. And while we can't change necessarily what the effect is on our genes, we certainly can change how we interact with the effect of those things. So for instance, with sleep apnea, you can get it identified and get it treated. With hyperhomocysteinemia, big word, but it just means too much of an amino acid called homocysteine that is directly linked to heart attacks and strokes and is an independent cause of dementia. So we can screen for that. If you've got it, it can be treated. So didn't mean to go on like that, but the reality is, is even if you're affected with something genetically, how you choose to handle that genetic inheritance or those epigenetic, epigenetic changes will really determine your future dementia risk. I think that's very important. It's, to some extent, let me just chime in. There are some people that... I'm, I'm pausing because my dog has decided to attack people, and I'm going to pause this, and I'm going to shut the curtain. Sorry. <laughs> that's why I That's why I said something weird, and we're going to have to pick right up, and I'm going to pretend like this never happened. Okay, sorry. I'm going to okay. shut You this. can also put her on your lap. We don't mind looking at her. Yeah, I know. Well, okay, what's well, sorry? Love dogs. I apologize. This usually does not happen. I usually am in my office, but it's it's a weird day. So oh. one second. Um, yes, in in the field that I'm in, epigenetics um, are really becoming all the rage in psychology. We still don't fully understand it, but we do know that life experiences and different factors and environmental toxins and lifestyle can make changes to your genetic code that can drastically alter your lifestyle and your health. Um, and one of the things you were talking about in this book was how you were looking at the various factors, not just a single factor of research. A lot of the uh, research before a certain year, I don't remember when, was really focused on exercise or weight or blood pressure, diabetes, genetics, medications, alcohol, and vitamins, instead of like kind of looking at a, of a larger picture. Um, but one thing that you talk about in here is a Lancet Commission's finding. And I think this is important because I think people still believe this. And I think I was taught this, that like just when you get older, you just start for becoming forgetful and you just start coming, you just sort of decline. And then you're, and then the next thing you know, you're in a nursing home. And, and this conclusion is saying dementia is not inevitable. In fact, managing 12 medical conditions and health behaviors could reduce the cases of worldwide dementia by 40%. And of course, what you told me earlier, it's never too late or too young to start the process of managing your own health, which, which is a, a tough sell here. Um, comments. <laughs> yeah. So absolutely correct. Uh, those 12 factors, we actually supplement them with an additional eight factors in our book. Uh, from the World Health Organization. But again, that's it's all right. based. So what we're looking at here is people taking a more active role in being able to manage these changes and essentially trying to view dementia not as an inevitability. I mean, we all know that normal aging causes us to lose a little bit over the years. So the number of items you can remember from a list 
is different when you're 80 than when you were 50. You lose a couple miles per hour off your fastball, essentially. If you're lucky, you're also a little smarter. So you're placing your fastball where it needs to be right now. So you're still unhittable. Not a lot of people are able to do that quite as successfully, but you get by. We're looking at what happens when aging goes wrong, when the declines are much more profound, when the person begins to lose function, when they're unable to care as well for themselves, when they're really not able to be the person that they were earlier in their life. And that's real different than normal aging. Yeah, absolutely. And um, there's so many directions we can go in this, but I kind of want to still outline the paradigm of what you're talking about. So uh, I was reading in here that a lot of people with mild cognitive impairment, which is like possibly a precursor to dementia. Am I right about that? Um, They don't actually get diagnosed by their uh, primary care physician. They end up getting diagnosed by like a neurologist or uh, some sort of psychometrician um, or, or something like that. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, it's actually that oftentimes they get diagnosed because of complaints. When you look at the technical diagnosis, it says mild cognitive impairment, comma, so stated. And I was looking at that and wondering, what the heck does that mean? What diagnoses do we make that's stated? But someone says, you know, I'm not thinking as well. And the doctor says, well, you got mild cognitive impairment. That really isn't a good diagnosis. We make the diagnosis in our offices based on changes in objective test scores of memory and attention and executive functions, essentially problem-solving abilities. And when they are weaker than they should be, for someone of their age and background. That's the comparison, not perfection, but compared to their peers. Then if they have not already lost a lot of function and if their deficits are mild, then we conclude that they've got mild cognitive impairment. And it is a risk factor because 50% of the people with mild cognitive impairment will develop dementia over the next three years. That's a little scary. The good news is another the other 50% are the same or better. So our goal is moving people from the likely to get worse into the likely to be stable or improve lane. And that way we have a much better outcome. And many of our patients five years later look very much the same as they did when they first walked in. And, you know, Paul, to your point, you know, who's diagnosing mild cognitive impairment and it's generally not your family doctor or your or your nurse practitioner or your physician's assistant because frankly the office visits that are happening today in doctors offices are way too short too condensed too targeted at what the insurance companies want the doctor to pay attention to uh, as opposed to what the patient really needs to have the doctor pay attention to and mild cognitive impairment can be a tricky thing, as Mitch described, to diagnose psychometrically. I mean, most of the time, you actually have to put some people through real, objective, black ink on white paper or computer-based neuropsych testing. And then that's where you're really going to see the problems that they're having in various domains of thought. So there's this underdiagnosis of mild cognitive impairment, just like there's this underdiagnosis of dementia. And in fact, According to the most recent Alzheimer's Association publication in 2021, about 60% of American doctors felt inadequate in terms of how to diagnose dementia. 
So it was actually one of the reasons why we decided to write this book, because we feel like people today need to be in control of their own health, but they need the way to do it in a in a matter that makes sense for them. So they need to understand what their goals are. They need to understand what their baseline problems are. And then how do they go and fix that stuff? And then lastly, how do they take it to a doctor, get the doctor to pay attention to them? So literally, if they read our book, go through that checklist, complete the checklist, that's something that they could take to their doctor or their nurse practitioner and say, hey, look, you know, according to the recent research, I'm kind of at risk for dementia and my mom had it and I don't want to turn out like her. So I'd like you to pay attention to my my methylmalonic acid level. I want you to pay attention to my sleep apnea. I want you to pay attention to my vitamin D. And I definitely want to figure out a way that I can get more exercise. So let's talk about my problems that are going to help keep me healthy. It was a way of empowering patients. Yeah, that makes sense. And actually, uh, getting back to the book, um, yeah, I kind of took it as a one, two, three punch. Uh, my notes say you sort of go over the concept and history of dementia treatment and the and also Alzheimer's and other things like that. And, and you kind of summarize the paradigm of everything going on that you've looked at. Number two, you go through all the models of risk and, and things that can uh, contribute. And then at, part three seems to be more of the practical guide um, to the risk factors and what you can do with the checklist and then positively what you can do to, um, I don't know, help yourself not in all these different risk factors, help yourself not get worse. Um, that's kind of what I was kind of gleaning from it. That's a good summary. And as a therapist, Paul, you particularly will appreciate the fact that change is a very difficult thing for almost everybody, as much as they want to change, there's all kinds of built-in resistances, there's all kinds of things that can get in the way, and that's why it's really important to be your own advocate and to take a hard look at what's going on with yourself and to then see how you can make small changes that will develop over time into larger and more consistent changes in how you function and how your brain works. Yes, I agree with that. I do think that a lot of people uh, don't really change until there is a crisis um, or some sort of thing that forces them into action. Uh, Most people are creatures of habit, um, whether those be good or bad, and they inherit lots of habits as they go along or develop more habits as they grow older. Um, So I I think that it's important. It is a paradigm that we try to also teach in psychology and and, and therapy because uh, we believe the first step is acknowledgement. You have to acknowledge what's going on and that there could be something going wrong or that you are at risk, right? And that you are X years old or that you are having sleep apnea in your 30s, right? Or whatever it is, or that you're uh, overweight or you're smoking cigarettes or all all these different factors that are at risk. And then... um, you know, knowledge is power. So getting educated is important. Um, We see that all the time in psychology. Sometimes just a minor education about the nervous system over a few sessions is enough to help somebody learn ways to emotionally regulate and and things like that. So that's kind of an oversimplification of what you're going through because you're going through the whole kit and caboodle here. But um, I do believe you have, it's written very easily. It's not written... um, in medical 
language. I can tell you that because I write in medical language all the time and I'm forced to uh, make it a little bit more readable. So for your average reader, you don't have to be a medical expert to read this book by the two doctors. But I want to get into some um, some stories here and some maybe breaking up some misconceptions of of what Alzheimer of what dementia is. Um, one of the things uh, just stuck out to me, and then you could just tell me if you got a story. But this, I kind of wanted to try to define dementia, and then also this one that I've seen a lot, which is anosognia is that it anosognosia anosognosia okay it sounds like latin where you don't actually know that you're impaired right but then you you keep forgetting that and then that causes a lot of problems with your doctor and your therapist but could we could you help define a little bit of what you would how you define dementia because it's such a it's a vast catch-all in a way isn't it it is sort of like saying cars right there's Fords and there's Chevys and there's Chryslers and it's maybe small yeah. Buicks or something. And you're trying to figure out, okay, what, what brand of car is this? Dementia is an overall neurological decline. It's a dementia, decline in mental abilities that's neurologically based. And the one that most people are aware of is Alzheimer's disease, partly because it's a large part of what we see as dementia, but also a lot of the vascular conditions, blood flow, circulation, what we used to call hardening of the arteries is very important, whether it's due to someone having had a stroke or due to the progressive wear and tear on their vascular system from illnesses like hypertension that's not regulated, diabetes that's out of control, having had some other kind of vascular blockage can create the same problem. Sleep apnea very often causes vascular changes, not enough oxygen getting to the brain. So this overlaps a great deal with Alzheimer's. And in fact, the majority of people have a combination of Alzheimer's and vascular dementia. Plus there's other brands. I mean, we know recently the whole thing with Bruce Willis brought frontotemporal dementia to the forefront. We see people who are professional athletes and even amateur athletes who over the course of their life have sustained multiple injuries to their brain. And you can even in a car accident, a single concussion can increase your risk of a dementia due to the changes caused by that injury much later on in your life. Parkinson's disease, most people think of as a movement disorder exclusively. Person stiff, they shake, they're having problems, they get stuck at times. Turns out that about 30 to 40% of the people with Parkinson's also develop dementia. Very often it will turn into what they call Lewy body disease, where the person may experience hallucinations and other kinds of changes. So it's really, really widespread. How many particular kinds are there? Emily? There are about 400 different independent causes of dementia. Only a handful are reversible. Okay. Well, that is that is good to know. Yes. So, and and you said here in your book, uh, dementia is caused by changes in brain structure, both in the outermost layer of the brain, the cortex, and the deeper or subcortical regions. And obviously, you talk about a lot about vascular blood flow, the things that affect that. Which is, to be honest, uh, I'm in the medical field, but that's not something we talk about every day over here in uh, the the regular land of <laughs> folks that are coming into therapy, let alone doctor's offices. 
Um, I think that's something that it, it needs to be kind of learned about or publicized more because it's important and it affects everything because your brain has, you know, blood. And also dementia is not something, um, it's not a psychiatric disease, right? That's this whole like idea of evil demented people is kind of like a stupid dumbed down slur. It's uh, not even really related to the actual origin of the word. It's a medical dementia is a medical disease and neurological or neurodegenerative illness. And that's when you said 400 causes, it also shows up different. Um, uh, one of the things that I said, I, I noticed with dementia that you said was common was that the short term memory might go away first where the long-term memory is more likely to stay intact. is and, and, and that, But again, it depends on the person, right? And it depends on the type of dementia. It depends on the, the actual cause of the dementia. You might see that type of dementia being more of the Alzheimer's type, and you would not necessarily see that short-term memory loss in a vascular dementia. I so see. that's one of the reasons why we advocate for neuropsychological testing, so that we can really figure out where the specific cognitive losses are, because that gives us a clue as to the type of dementia that somebody has. And that's if we're involved in treating a person. To get back to the point, I think that's also related to that. I think you were starting to make was the paradox about how long-term memory can often be intact, whereas short-term memory is impaired. So the person can remember who they sat next to in grade school, they can't remember who they sat next to this morning at the senior center. Why is that? There always people say, I can't understand how that's possible. And the answer is memories are made. They are laid down chemically and electrically in our brain. Connections are made. The strength of those connections depend on the quality of your brain when you make them. So a young brain with more chemicals and more connections, make stronger connections. That's why the childhood memories can stick so well. Whereas when you get older, you have fewer chemicals, fewer connections, and if you're suffering from dementia, they're even more depleted. So you don't make very good connections. And therefore, 10 minutes after someone tells you a list of uh, items on a grocery store, and from a grocery store, you probably can only remember two or three rather than seven. So that's why that's that disparity. People are always surprised. How could that be? Well, that's the reason. It's how well your brain was working when you made the memory. Well, that makes sense. Um, okay, I'm gonna I'm about to ask you a story, like I said, but before I get to the story, I do think these statistics were really overwhelming. Uh, let's just talk about them. 50 million people worldwide diagnosed with Alzheimer's, with care costs close to $1 trillion U.S. dollars annually. With a new case diagnosed every three seconds, dementia is projected to cost $2 trillion and, global, and globally impact 82 million people by 2030 and 152 million individuals by 2050. And you said, of course, why is it growing so much? Well, it's age, actually, because, uh, let's just say here, basically, the older you are, the greater the risk of dementia. In your 60s, the risk is about 10%. The risk grows to 25% in our mid-70s. In our mid-80s, it grows by 40%. And of course, which is interesting, uh, by 2050, when approximately half of the individuals in the world will be 85 years old or older, a tripling of elders with dementia is predicted uh, because of, right now, I think, falling birth rates in certain places. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like this is a huge deal, but 
I think in general conversation that I've heard, people just don't understand it. Like you just told me there's like 400 different types and causes and, and different things like that. So um, maybe uh, could you tell us a few stories, uh, maybe a good one and a bad one. Um, you know, good, the bad one is to incentivize us to worry about our health and, you know, start exercising and whatever. And, and maybe the good one is like uh, maybe using some of your advanced care that uh, helps people. Uh, thoughts? We certainly want people to continue growing older. So yeah. We're not to change that. We just want to have them grow better. Better. Over the okay. of their lives. And a lot of that has to do with what we can do to intervene in some of bad habits. You know, for example, uh, there was one guy that came to see me. I don't think Emily ever saw him, but here, here's a bad example. This guy was sort of the walking textbook for risk of dementia. He had mild cognitive impairment when I saw him, but he had all of the things going on that he shouldn't. So he was overweight, didn't exercise, drank too much, was still smoking cigarettes, wasn't taking his medications regularly because they were expensive. And of course, the money that he was otherwise going to spend for his medications, he was spending for cigarettes. So he comes in to see me and he complains that his girlfriend is now saying he's not doing the things he used to do the way he used to do them. He's forgetting things that she tells him. So we joke a little bit about how all of us guys don't listen very much to our wives and girlfriends. And after that, I said, but tell me what it is that you think is going on. And you mentioned before this term anosognosia, which is a Greek term, meaning literally the inability to see oneself. Well, he said, I think my thinking is just fine. So here I am dealing with this guy. I got to first find out if his thinking's fine. Then I got to give him the feedback about what turned out to be his cognitive problems. But then the question becomes, where do we start? Does he want to change? If so, I'm dealing with someone who doesn't see the problem. How do we make those kind of changes? In the end, what we ended up doing was starting on something that was very basic and that he needed to deal with, which was he needed to slow down or stop smoking cigarettes because that's where the money went to, to some extent, that was not being able to pay for medication for his blood pressure. And we needed to also improve his breathing ability so he could begin to walk some places and get some exercise. We also sent him off for a sleep study, which surprisingly was not abnormal. In other words, he had sleep apnea, so we could make some interventions there potentially. But it all started from that one route that he was all a combination of things that fed off of each other, his inactivity, his sedentary lifestyle, his smoking, his drinking, his problems. And oh, by the way, part of the reason why he wasn't listening to his girlfriend is he had a hearing impairment. So that, that, <laughs> that's why I say he's the picture. If they opened up the dictionary to mild cognitive impairment, his face would be right there. Oh, my goodness. So essentially, he was, you know, unless he was lucky, he was setting himself up for a definite 
diagnosis of some type of dementia in the future, probably. That the Absolutely. probability was high, right? Because of all these factors. And a lot of those affecting the vascular system, right? And a blood flow to the brain and oxygen to the brain, which apparently without having that causes degeneration, I believe I've that's in probably every textbook I've read. Um, but then it's all like the, the weird thing is, is I guess because it's not a it's not of all or nothing, right? It's like parts of his brain are being affected. And what parts, you know, and slowly things are degenerating. So that that's yeah. Um, you know, the funny thing is, I think uh even people that don't know much about health do know that all of the factors you mentioned are not too healthy. Uh, I think that's kind of, I think that's kind of known, but it's a matter of willpower or, or help or environment or uh, want to, uh, and support from others to be able to change those, especially because they didn't develop overnight. He didn't start smoking 17 cigarettes his first day, he started with one. Mm-hmm. He didn't overeat, drink too much as for, you know, it, it's a thing that happens over time. Um, which is a whole nother uh, addiction medicine is a whole nother topic. But uh, even if you don't have a full on quote unquote uh, clinical addiction, the habit is is enough to, you know, frequent enough to uh, really put you at high risk for for this. You rarely have problems convincing someone that exercise is good for them, that a normal body weight is good for them, that drinking more moderately is good for them. That's why in the book we talk about, it's not that part of it. You have to ask them to examine their butt. And when I say that, people always look at me and say, what? I said, no, no, not the butt you're sitting on. The butt that comes in the phrase, I should exercise butt. Whatever it is after that is the objection. That's the point where you say, let's figure out how to work around it. So asking someone, Examine your butt is a good starting point because then you have an opportunity to perhaps intervene. I agree with that completely. Uh, we're uh, in psychology. We're big fans of uh, motivational interviewing uh, by Dr. Bill Miller. Uh, I believe Bill Miller, a very good book to uh, read if you haven't read it. Um, and interestingly enough, in today's culture, with your average client coming in, one of the biggest butts I hear is, but... And it's something to do with finances, something to do with, I need to work more. I need to drink this five-hour energy and cram this um, fast food burger down my throat as fast as possible due to this. But then I I, I always say this quote, and, and the, the, all these things can be deconstructed, but uh, I don't remember who said this, but like the first health or the first wealth is health. Was that Emerson who said that? Um, wow, that's a great get, line. I'm going to get real bad emails if I don't figure out who this is right now. But yes, it was Ralph Waldo Emerson. The first wealth is health. And so with a lot of very carefully worded non-judgmental statements that you pretend that the client is coming up with the conclusion themselves and you're not telling them, <laughs> um, that's a very key element, by the way, if you're a doctor. Right. Um, don't say stop smoking. You want to have the person convince you why they should stop smoking. So I, I usually try to help them deconstruct. Okay, you got this goal of finances. I said, okay, and explain that and what you know what's going into that and how's that affecting your family. But what if you're what if you can't function? What then happens to your family and your dreams and your dog and your lake house or whatever you're trying to achieve here? 
So how do we then meet in the middle? But it's way more complicated than that. It's a whole other podcast. So we won't go into that, but it, it is very important to examine the but because everyone has a rationalizations. Humans love to make meaning and they love to rationalize, as we know, if anyone's read any books, that people don't, they don't, you know, unlike movie villains, they don't, they aren't evil for no reason. You know, they have, they don't even think they're evil, right? They, 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 we all have a reason, whether it's where we're doing quote unquote, objectively good things that people would vote and say that's good or objectively bad things that people would vote and say that's bad for, for the human. Most humans believe that they're always doing the right thing and they don't, and they rationalize their behaviors and their habits. Thoughts on that. I've got a new take that I've started using since the book was written on dealing with some of these bad habits. Because people say, well, I'm overweight. My doctor wants me to lose weight. Mm -hmm. And I tell them I don't really care what their doctor wants, which again, gets their attention. I'm always about getting people's attention. I love that. They're not listening unless I get their attention. Mm -hmm. So I say, I don't care what your doctor wants. And they say, you don't? I said, no. You got to ask yourself the question, what does my brain want? What does my brain need? You know that this is causing a problem for your brain. You know that regardless, we can, I'm going to shame you. I'm not going to tell you that you're fat. I'm not going to tell you that this is a problem. But your body was built to handle a certain size. That's what your brain was designed for. You're now at a larger size than your brain was intended. So what do you need to tell your brain you need to do to make it healthy? And by changing the focus, I get around a lot of that because they're not doing what their doctor wanted them to do. If they did, they wouldn't have had the problem continuing. It's that they're framing it externally rather than internally. And I want to shift the focus. I want them to be back in control and ask themselves, is that good for my brain? Yeah, I think that's very important uh, to have people uh, get their sense of autonomy. And, uh, oh boy, I'm losing words today. But uh, self-determination uh, back, which and, and that's kind of, you know, uh, feel free to refer to a bunch of therapists because our whole goal is to help people become empowered in their own life. And if you become empowered in your own life and you actually like your life, well, gee, golly, what happens? You start making, uh, quote unquote, better health choices, according to doctors and, uh, you know, researchers um, just naturally versus uh, when you're upset and you're feeling like you don't have autonomy and you don't have self-determination and you feel like you're worthless and you start making choices, uh, you know, stuffing your face with Cinnabons while no one's looking or, you know, smoking cigarettes in the alley or whatever. You just start doing these things because you just don't care about yourself or, or care about loved ones. And it's a deep level because if you ask people, do you care about themselves? They say yes. But in psychotherapy, we found out there's different layers to that, which is a whole nother podcast. But back to you, <laughs> I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to make sure we stay on this podcast about to mention. I want to, I would wonder, uh, Dr. Uh, Chansky, Emily, because you, you, you also treat patients. If you could tell us maybe a story about somebody who, who was starting to have some dementia or, or, or had risk factors and, and followed maybe some of these advanced protocols to, uh, not get it. Can you, could, could you tell us a story about that? Well, sure. Um, and actually, um, this book arose from the fact that we were treating so many patients and we we're getting to the point in our stage and age of life where we realized that we couldn't keep this up for the next 20 years, the rate we were doing it. And we really wanted to take our message to the greater public so that even though you can't walk into our consulting room anymore, um, you know, cause we can't see thousands and thousands of patients a year. Um, we really want to get the message out. So sure. I'll be happy to share some, some, uh, a really great story actually. 
And this was one of my very first patients that I had back in 2007 when I opened this particular practice. And he had come in the door with all the typical risk factors, high blood pressure, overweight, uh, bad cholesterol, um, trying very hard to be a diabetic, smoking, had sustained a lot of head trauma in Vietnam. He was a vet uh, and he was already in his mid to late 50s. And he was definitely um, showing either a vascular type mild cognitive impairment or maybe a combined Alzheimer's vascular type. So back in those days, we would send, um, I'd send a patient for a PET scan, a special type of computer, um, uh, computerized computerized tomography. Excuse me. You're not the only one who's having word finding, bro. <laughs> anyway, so with that special kind of radiology, you can actually see what part of the brain is working the way it should, taking up glucose the way it should, and what parts aren't. Well, he came back and oh my gosh, he came back with a diagnosis of, you know, probable Alzheimer's disease just based on the radiologic findings. And Mitch certainly found major deficits that were consistent with uh, probably a combined um, mild cognitive impairment or a mild dementia to start with. Well, what we ended up doing is I sent him for a sleep study. And it came back positive that he had sleep apnea and started to get him on treatment with continuous positive airway pressure, which is a way that you sleep with a little plastic device on your mouth and your nose at night. And it sends air at a constant rate of pressure to keep your airway open at night to make sure that the air goes down into the lungs, that the red blood cells can grab the oxygen and carry the oxygen to the brain which uses about 20% of the oxygen in our body. So anyway, I didn't see this patient for close to three years because he went back to treatment at the VA. He vanished and we didn't see him until he went to his doctor at the VA who ordered another PET scan for some bizarre reason. The PET scan came back and the wife wanted to know why the PET scan was better. It was read as normal. All of the findings of the Alzheimer's and vascular dementia were gone. Well, we got him in. Mitch did testing. His testing was now normalized in neuropsych testing. We had managed to fix the obstructive sleep apnea. And this man, over a period of three years, without even being on dementia medications, had normalized his neuropsych cognitive abilities and had normalized his brain activity in terms of glucose uptake, telling us that his brain was acting normally. So it's really important that the person figure out what is in their mix, what's going on, so that they can target the interventions so that it will make the most difference. In this man's case, it was treating his obstructive sleep apnea. Yes, it's so important to get to the root cause of what is causing the possible disease uptick or or exactly. potential. Um, we see that in psychology all the time, just with people, you know, they come in with anxiety, okay? Um, 
not only are there so many reasons to have anxiety, which are cognitive, there's also the thyroid, and there's also diet, and there's also where you live, and there, you know, there's there's so many factors. And so our job is not only to help treat the anxiety with different therapeutic interventions um, over time, but also we have to figure out what the origin or the etiology of the anxiety is. Otherwise, we, we might we might apply the wrong intervention. Well, take into exactly medicine, right. right, where you guys are talking about how many different causes. Of, how many did you say? How many factors can lead to dementia that you've identified? Lifestyle factors? What is it? The lifestyle factors out of the 20 factors that we use in our model, yeah. three quarters of them are either medication, lifestyle, or disease, modifiable disease factors. And that's why the checklist that we put into the book is for us, I think, a really critical element because we're not just interested in educating people about what could be going on. We want them to be able to have a tool to be able to see what's going on for them because that allowed them and their doctors to target those changes which need to be changed. So when you're filling out this questionnaire, you can do it either in the book, you can do it with a link to our website, which is called braindoc.com. It's going to give you something that you can print out and look at and decide, okay, here's where I could start. Because you can't start everywhere. You have to start really one place or maybe two places. And sometimes it's with something that's the worst or sometimes it's with something that's pretty close to normal, but it just needs a tweak to get you to something that is working better for you. So maybe you're exercising, but it's infrequent and it's not enough. But you know that if you just up that a bit, it's going to give you more ability to then control your blood pressure. So that'll help with that. Maybe that'll also motivate you to be more outgoing. Maybe you can join a walking group. So now you're going to work on the social involvement because we know that social support and engagement is really an important factor. In the process of doing that, you're going to perhaps also be less depressed. We know depression that's chronic is a cause for increased risk for dementia. So you have to start someplace. And oftentimes by starting someplace, you're able to unravel some of this knot of different problems that's why we have the questionnaire. It's really intended as a motivational and a self-assessment kind of tool. Yeah, I think this questionnaire is important as you've both treated, what was it, over 25,000 patients? Is that what's going on? Oh, oh, it's used and treated more than 25,000 patients with cognitive impairment. You guys, how many, you, do you know how many patients you've treated? <laughs> um, we don't have an accurate count at this point. We've I've stopped counting at 10,000 okay, since yeah. 2007. Mitch has thousands thousands. I'm in thousands. the 20,000s range because yeah. I'm, I'm old. Yeah, because I was going to say, you've you've got this test now being utilized by a bunch of doctors. That's why I read the wrong statistic. But I was looking at here on one of the pages um, where you've listed all these different factors, and they all point towards dementia risk, Like, and you've grouped them by type. So we've got the early childhood trauma, the TBIs, the prenatal, the genes, all that sort of thing. Um, you've got this sort of like, I don't know what you want to call it, vitamin panel, like uh, B12, homocysteine, folic acid, iron, methylmalonic acid, vitamin D. I'm going to come back to iron. Remind me about that. Okay. Um, over here, because we haven't talked about that yet. 
No, Over we here, you got like lifestyle, <laughs> hypertension, smoking, midlife, obesity, sedentary de- uh, type two. You got the sleep issues, hypoxia, sleep apnea, and all that. You've got, of course, my favorite, the psychological and uh, environmental factors like low cognitive activity, social isolation, sensory loss, chronic depression, and of course, the drugs like benzodiazepines, opiates, excessive alcohol, anticholinergic drugs. I don't know what those are, but I've heard of them before. But are you talking about Benadryl? Is that what you're talking about? That's a biggie. Okay. So that's those biggies. Somebody comes got, to you with a sleep yeah. problem and you, you, you know, they're complaining because they're tired during the day. They're anxious. They're irritable and they're getting complaints from their spouse or their kids about their lack of attention. And maybe they're running into trouble at work. Maybe they had a car accident because they fell asleep behind the wheel, but they've got the sleep problem. And what are they taking for their insomnia? Cause it's really insomnia. They're taking Benadryl. And it's safe. Or they're taking something like one of those over-the-counter meds. Like Z, 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 or whatever. behind yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's the Tylenol PM. Well, the PM part is Benadryl. So not only does it put you to sleep, but it, it makes you stupid. It actually causes cognitive impairment over time, just like the benzos do. It's a different mechanism, but it actually opposes the activity of something called acetylcholine which is a neurotransmitter that you need to form memories. So one of the most important things is to stop the drugs, whether they're prescribed or whether you're buying them over the counter, that will actually contribute to your memory impairment. Another biggie is uh, when you get up in the middle of the night two or three times to pee, um, and eventually that generalizes to daytime behavior, And that urinary frequency, you will often be given a pill by a doctor so that you don't have that urinary urgency, that frequency, or that urinary stream, the lower urinary tract symptoms that a lot of men develop as a result of enlarged prostates. Or women develop because they had children by by normal uh, vaginal birth. So unfortunately, the drugs that you prescribe for that actually interfere with the acetylcholine and amazingly when you take people off those drugs their cognition can normalize but that's the kind of thing we advise you doing with the help of your doctor oh of course yes we do have in the book though a link to a calculator that was developed by a british physician by the name of rebecca king and it's allows you to put in your drugs that you're taking and to calculate their anticholinergic burden. So that's additive. So if you're taking the pill to help you to sleep and you're taking the pill to keep you asleep and not go to the bathroom and you happen to get a cold. So now you take it over the counter medication to dry you up. So all these things, and maybe you're on also a psych med that's got some small but still significant anticholinergic effect and you're on something else for circulation, well, all these things become a much bigger uh, issue. And that's why, as Emily points out, you don't want to do this on your own. You want to take that information, then go to the doctor and say, here's what I'm on. This is what the number is that I get. What can we do about this? Can you switch me to a different medication while I'm so I don't get up in the middle of the night? Something with a lower anticholinergic burden. There are those medications. What could I do instead of taking the PM for sleep? Because I don't want to add those numbers to the ones I already have. So it's a whittling away kind of process. 
Oh, yes. And especially with sleep, that's a hot topic in uh, the counseling world. But there are so many things you can do. If you look at Harvard's sleep uh, tips or whatever on the internet, they have 10 behavioral tips you can do. Not only that, uh, there are a lot of doctors who've been getting into these uh, amino acids that you can take that apparently aren't addicting, such as L-theanine and other things like that, which can help relax the body. But there are so many behavioral factors and things people eat and drink that I see to be the main causes of having insomnia, which, of course, if you don't sleep well, that's one of the factors in this uh, book that can lead to this. People love having their TV mounted to their wall in their bedroom, which is a big no-no if you ask me as the therapist. But that's a whole, again, that's a, that's a sleep podcast. I couldn't but. agree with you more, Paul. Okay, good. Well, I, I, I now I, I know we've only got limited time here before we sign off, but I really am very interested. I did not know about this iron B12 folic acid. Can you explain just a little overview of how these different substances could affect your brain and uh, future issues. Cause there's a lot of people, uh, you know, that don't want to eat animals anymore. That's fine. You know, the vegan thing is getting really huge, but I've noticed right. I get some vegans with this chronic fatigue and they, and they, cause they aren't taking enough of these vitamins that you, you normally get from meat. And so uh, I, I, and I'm just, and then a lot of women I've, I've run into, uh, they have low iron, they have pre anemia all over the right. place. So can you, can you talk about some of these real quick? Sure, absolutely. I'm so glad you're really honing in on that because it's the probably one of the one of the factors that is are least familiar to um, contemporary uh, Americans. You know, the average person today. Iron. Uh, each one of these things: iron deficiency, a B12 deficiency, a folic acid deficiency, are independent causes of dementia. Wow. On their own. So that what happens is if you don't have enough iron in your body, either because you're losing a lot of blood on a monthly basis or for some reason your body is not making enough red blood cells because you don't have the iron or you're not consuming enough iron, what's going to end up happening is you're going to end have decreased amounts of oxygen to carry. But iron is a cofactor. Yeah, you'll have decreased amount of red blood cells to carry that oxygen to the brain. So that's a high level effect. At a low level effect, iron is a cofactor. In other words, it's a necessary part of a lot of chemical processes in our body that produce energy and produce other necessary chemicals, neurotransmitters. So if you don't have enough iron, you're not making other necessary chemicals that your body needs to work correctly. So people with celiac disease, somebody with a malabsorption syndrome, someone who's had surgery for obesity, even if it's just the pouch kind, will have a problem with these types of vitamins and, and iron specifically because the places in their body that absorb this through the food they normally eat aren't there anymore. B12 is a really, really critical, and B12 and folic acid, which is B9, are again cofactors in the manufacture of something called ATP. ATP is the energy molecule that every one of our cells relies on in our body. And we can't store it, we have to make it fresh second by second by second. 
So if you don't have enough B12 and you don't have enough B9, you're not going to make enough energy molecules in your cells, including in your brain cells. Though that that's which is why a deficiency in either one or both of them is a high risk factor for the cause of dementia. And if going, somebody drinks alcohol, yeah, and that is potentially going to interfere with their absorption of vitamin B1, which is thiamine. And so you can have somebody who's drank, you know, just a couple of glasses of wine at night most of her life, but maybe hasn't gotten enough B1, and she will have a severe form of short-term memory called Wernicke-Korsakov's, where you could walk in and say hello to her, introduce yourself, have a great conversation, walk out the room, and five minutes later, walk back in, and she'll never remember meeting you. So anybody who drinks alcohol should be taking enough B1 to compensate for potential loss of B1 or thiamine. These are all good things to know. I I was curious about two things you said, um, but they're related. So um, have you ever heard of people with a methylation disorder that cannot process B vitamins? Because we've been running into this in psychology. Yes, that's exactly... Oh, okay. I'm yeah. so excited. Yeah. I'm so excited that you're actually bringing this up. It's it's really insightful of you to know about that. Um, kudos to you on that one. There are people, actually 12% of people in the United States now, specifically with Alzheimer's disease, not just all-cause dementia, but Alzheimer's, who have this methylation problem. It's called an MTHFR C677T Poly, single nucleotide polymorphism. Now, it isn't that a mouthful, <laughs> but what it what we're saying is that they cannot transport the protein needed to transport B12 into the cells where you make your energy molecule, ATP. That protein transporter doesn't work. It's like a truck that's got three wheels on it instead of having four. So the B12, they can eat as much meat and as many green leafy vegetables as they want, shovel that stuff into their mouths. But unfortunately, all the B12 is going to be sitting in their blood. It's not going to be sitting inside the cells where they need it. So you have to fix them by literally giving them a methylated form of B12 and a methylated form of folic acid. And you've got to do both together because. If you fix only one, the deficit in the other can be unmasked and can have really severe neurologic consequences. That's why you measure methylmalonic acid to assess B12 deficiency and homocysteine to accurately assess folic acid deficiency. And I am glad that you've you've talked about MTHFR as as that's how as far as I know how to say it. But uh, but I, we had a few people I know I won't they'll remain nameless have had some cases of young people with the most extreme behavior that we had seen, yes. sort of looking like bipolar but almost like antisocial behavior. Yes, and and they had all these tests, and it turned out it was a simple. This is hilarious. Uh, after after th- this isn't hilarious. After thousands of dollars of tests, I guess it's ironic, thousands and thousands of dollars of tests and traveling everywhere, they found a doctor that said, take methylated B vitamins and folic acid. 
And within like three months, this kid was uh, normalized. And I knew this was somewhat anecdotal, but I, I know that you're seeing this on a bigger level. 12%. Like the kid went from like, do, I won't even describe what he was doing, but just crazy stuff, like possibly going to have to be institutionalized to going back to school. I mean, he cried a lot after he went back to school. This is not a person I know, it's just a, through a case, but 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 he he had all these unkind of let emotions out, but he just started acting normal again. He slept better. Yes. He ate better. He could socialize. And it was all due to this weird genetic, I guess a genetic uh, condition. It is or genetic. genetic. And by yeah. the way, it can be not only inherited from your parent, but you can also acquire it epigenetically. And the important other thing to keep in mind is that uh, a B12 deficiency or a folic acid deficiency or an iron deficiency can cause depression. Yes. So, you know, you've got that emotional component in this highly reactive child, this highly reactive adolescent. So there were a lot of good reasons why this kid had a problem. Absolutely. You just came up with the perfect time. It takes about 90 days to really start to see a change when you give them the methylated form of these vitamins. Um, and the big thing is you've got to keep them on it for the rest of their lives. That is what I was understanding. And also, as we see in mental health, um, you know, we have seasonal affective disorder. Well, you know, a lot of seasonal affective disorder. Uh, I'm sorry. That's a kind of a trash diagnosis. Sorry. But, but it's really <laughs> vitamin. De- it's vitamin D deficiency is what I what I've seen it as. And also, obviously, the clouds, you don't go outside, and you go walking. So you're becoming sedentary. It's all these different factors. But the big one I'm seeing is vitamin D deficiency. When I've had my clients in the winter say, oh, you know, you know I say, go get your vitamin levels tested, go get your blood test. And sure enough, like almost every time it was, they were below recommended levels of vitamin D dangerously low because they weren't yeah. getting outside at all in the winter. And where are you practicing? Well, I have a clinic in Michigan. In Arizona, then imagine what we're seeing in Massachusetts where we practice. Yes. Well, I'll, well, actually in Arizona, uh, where my, my wife is a doctor in Arizona and, uh, and we, she has a clinic here and also does other stuff. Anyway, that's, that's why the mystery of where I live. But, uh, the, one of the things we see in Arizona is the same thing, but guess when it happens the summer. In the summertime, so, people so are May, using sunscreen. Right. Well, not only that, they don't even leave their house. They May their house. to September, it's as if it's winter in the Northeast or the Midwest because it's too hot, except at really early in the morning, four in the morning or later. And so people are the only sun exposure they're getting, perhaps, is through their car window commuting right. to their job. And uh, maybe a, a mild day, they'll go out in the pool. But half the time, they're wearing contact lenses or glasses, blocking the UV. It, it's a whole thing. So, uh, there, and a lot of people don't supplement because it, you know, uh, you know, I don't know. Vitamin supplements are great. I take them. However, I know there are a ton of terrible quality ones, and a bunch of people selling you them and telling you to eat this chocolate bar and it'll like change your life. Anyway, you have to do a lot of research <laughs> to find out what vitamins to be taking, right? And who are the labs that are making them and what kind of derivatives are in them and, and how much, because you can take too many vitamins. And if you take too many vitamins like vitamin D, it's fat soluble and that can cause another problem. You have to actually have a doctor looking at this and somebody who knows what they're talking about and you have to vary it. Anyway, the point is, is that a lot of people in Arizona are also vitamin D deficient for the same reason. And we see all sorts of disease issues with that as well. So 
Um, I just did not realize, and I guess my mind was blown while reading your book, that I knew about the factors about alcohol and benzos and all that. I knew about all the obesity, sedentary, smoking, diet. I knew because I'd interviewed some other people about to mention on this podcast about the low, the social isolation, uh, social isolation and chronic depression. And I knew about sleep apnea. I did not know about B12, homocysteine, folic acid, iron, uh, whatever this one is, methylmalonic acid and vitamin D. I did not know this. They were contributors to this. And that is even more stark and important to, to uh, tell our patients as therapists um, to read this book. Because if you've got chronic depression and anxiety, um, well, there could be other factors contributing, not just what's going on uh, personally in your narrative, uh, but also physically. So um, I am very excited about this book because it's also not too long. It's not too big. It's not weighing my arm down right now as I hold it. <laughs> Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Another benefit to reading it. Well, that shows your <laughs> you intelligence. Get it on Kindle level. and on Apple, so yeah. you can oh. download it on your on your device, and it's going to be an audio book coming out. Oh, I, that was another question. You listen to it while you're walking. That is exactly what I was hoping you were going to say because I really wanted an audiobook version of this because I'm a huge fan of audiobooks for when I take walks uh, with my dog and other people. But um, I want to know, um, is is there a follow-up workbook coming? Um, and is there a uh, something that you're going to be able to you know, go on the circuit and educate clinicians, uh, uh, medical doctors around the U.S. who are, who are missing this? Uh, I'm sorry to like you know, wreck your summer plans, but I'm just suggesting these things. Any Anything else coming besides this book? This book's great, but I feel like there needs to be more out there. Well, why don't you tell them, and then I'll pick up after you finish. Okay, well, there's a couple of things. Number one, we're, there's, at the end of the book, the last chapter, we're asking people to essentially write us questions okay. that we can then answer for them, and we're going to store that information and look to do a sequel that's like answers to dementia prevention. So that's that's an easy one. Because It'll be, uh, ask the doctor everything that you ever wanted to ask about dementia. We've done a dementia number of prevention. talks like that, and they're actually the most successful because they're all interactive and people never get a chance to ask most doctors questions and get answered, you know, because everyone's got their hand on the door in the examining room. Let me get out of here. What's your problem? Okay, here, let me write a script. So this gives people a chance to really interact with us. We're looking for that. Uh, I want to write a book for doctors on dementia prevention. Emily disagrees. She doesn't think that most doctors are going to be open to it, but we'll see. Maybe we'll get some, some positive feedback from this. And she's got an idea for something. You want to share that? Sure. I'd love to. Um, we are so aware of how early some of these changes can occur and can affect somebody later in their lifetime that. Our next book is really going to be something entitled Dementia Proof Your Baby. Oh, I like that. Look at that face. Look I at like Paul's that. face. Yes. Well, these days in the publishing world, you either have to curse or put something weird on your cover to get people to read it. But I feel like when you talk about people's babies, then you just got all the mama bears and all the daddy grizzlies all fired up, okay? Because nobody wants to imagine their child in a nursing home, not remembering who they are, especially, as we know, 
the scariest term I've heard recently, and people people are scared of this, and this is in the book. You talk about how many people are scared. Early onset dementia, dementia. early onset Alzheimer's. I swear to God, I think that's the most uh, scary horror movie I've ever heard of, right? You know, because it's real. <laughs> it's real. It's not just some fantasy. <laughs> this is happening all across the country due to various factors. And so I, I do love that. Uh, you said uh, you said something, proof your baby. Uh, dementia dementia proof, proof your baby. Yes, I agree. Because <clears throat> these habits... I, I I could keep going, but like, okay, you ever go to a restaurant and they have the kids menu? What's on sure. the kids menu? Garbage. Garbage. Why are you feeding your baby garbage? First of all, you're in control of their palate. Their palate uh, is going to be determined by you. So start right. when they're young with the baby food, make them eat kale and all that stuff. That's, t- you know, tastes terrible. And eventually it won't taste terrible to them. It tastes terrible to you because you've been eating comfort food and comfort food you you start to look like the food that's comforting you. This is this is the thing. You know, that's that, that, that is what happens. You start looking like a potato, you know, or a steak. I'm serious. And, and yes, it's, you, you know, do. It's a, and it's an eating disorder. So, you know, I uh, my my wife also says, Don't fat shame. I say, I'm not fat shaming. I'm just saying I see obesity as an eating disorder. Everyone talks about, you know, bulimia and, and all that stuff, which is a huge deal, but like it's an eating disorder because you have to eat to live. And then these foods are addicting. And so if your baby is eating hot dogs and spaghetti at all the stupid kids' meals and the and the grilled cheese, the worst stuff on the menu, what are they gonna be eating as adults? They're gonna they're gonna go to what's familiar. That's comforting. But if I feed my baby all this health food and diversity of health food, not to go too crazy, what do they call that when somebody's um obsessed with health food? They call that orthorexia. That's not what we're trying to do here. Um, we're trying to get your child hooked on healthier snacks because then when they need comfort and they're older, they're going to go to the, the the smoothie place and get a nice fruit smoothie with some leafy greens in it. They're not going to go to a place that will not be mentioned that may or may not be serving, you know, terrible shakes made of God knows what. And they make green ones around St. Patrick's Day. But I'm not going to mention that because I don't want to get another letter in the mail. So um, <laughs> but essentially. You know, that is so important because what you're talking about and to in kind of conclusion, and I'll let you have your own conclusion, but is that you're you're talking about living a lifestyle where you observe your behaviors and you're not shocked one day in the doctor's office hearing, you know, you've got two years to live because of all your behaviors. These are all things that you can slowly alter over time. And like you said, um, Dr. Mitch, you said, pick one at a time. Don't overwhelm yourself. This book could be overwhelming, but you know, you said here, don't give up. You know, pick the small goal. You know, these are all things that we talk about in psychology with psychology. But you're, from what I understand, your health is kind of like a big spider web. You pull one side of the spider web. You don't think it might be. You know, that's only the western edge of the spider web. Maybe that's only damaging the western edge. No, it moves the entire web. And and so our bodies are not you know isolated organs. They're all they're all living in the same soup. So um, I feel like your book is very holistic, which is another buzzword um, that I'll throw out there uh, for, for folks. But uh, so that's kind of my conclusion. That's why I loved your book. Uh, I have not finished the whole thing. So sorry about that. But um, I will be finishing it this uh, spring. But so far, I loved it. And I think people are going to like it. And it's an easy read. I read it. I read it like over half of it in like two days. So it's, it's an easy one to read. And I learned stuff. Um, so 
Conclusions, you want people are going to go to braindoc.com, which is a really good website, braindoc.com, like doctor, not like a doc you put your boat at. Um, right. And <laughs> I don't know what's at but that. Probably site. if you put that in there, it would still come up because would, I don't know. <laughs> it might. It might. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It might. Um, and so uh, any conclusions that you wanted to say for folks who are out there that are hearing this and going, oh, my God, I'm overwhelmed or, oh, boy, I'm excited. You know, I don't know. Some people might. It, who knows what people are thinking right now i would say that prevention is not sexy and because of that you really have to make the effort to commit to making a change so we talk about it you know if there's a fire there's six seven eight engines that show up the news crews are out People jumping out of windows and stuff. If it leads, if it bleeds, it leads on the news. People really pay attention to that. They don't pay attention to the candle that's moved away from the window shade, so it prevents the fire that could have started. To come back to the very beginning with the fire analogy, and so you really have to look and say prevention. Okay, this is something that will be better than dementia cure, because. No cure is perfect. We don't have those things on the horizon. So we're really looking for people to take a forward-looking kind of approach to this. And that's that would be, for me, the most important thing I would, I would put out there. And Very for good. me, basically, Paul, I really want to thank you for doing what you do and getting people to focus on these kinds of issues. Because the biggest problem, I think, in healthcare today is that people don't have the help that they need to really do the work that they need to. So you take the time in your life and, and out of your professional career to actually craft these meetings, these endeavors, these encounters for folks um, that they can listen to and and take in and think about. And I really applaud your your work in doing that. Thank you for that. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I I love doing this. This is I'm an investigator, so I always love learning. So I appreciate you actually taking the time to write a book like this, because I my strength is not writing a book. If I write a book, it's unfortunately going to be about two thousand pages and very off topic. Um, that is my pedantic, loquacious problem. But luckily, if I keep the fire, yeah, what's that? What'd you learn? It's much harder to write less. Yes. And that, but that's a key point. So that's why I have you as my guest, and I'm not a guest on other people's podcasts because you <laughs> you kept it brief. Because I mean, my God, there's like 40 pages of references and acknowledgments and further readings. So we're talking, you know, you really condense this, and that's the sign of intelligence is when you can reduce something to an understandable and concise uh, uh, format. I guess is what I would say. So that's why I've limited this podcast to an hour to an hour and 20 minutes, where I think we're just approaching uh, close to a little bit over an hour right now. So I want to thank you both. And I'm excited to promote this. And um, for our listeners, you know, it's never too late to try to reverse your dementia. If you're listening to this right now and you're in your 60s, go to the go to the Brain Doc website, get this book. It's, you know, you probably have spent this much on Starbucks in the last week. Uh, it's probably like, what is this, like $12 or something? Okay. No, it's you know. more than that, but you can get it through oh. Amazon, you get it through Barnes & Noble, you get it through your local bookstore. I mean, okay. we're not selling the yeah. book. Bookshop.org, yeah. 
all of those out there. That's where you get it. Don't come to us. We ain't selling. Oh no, but you got cool stuff on your website. Yeah. So we do. You we do. Bookshop. I'll put I'll put links to all that. And you're right, it is more, but I got a free copy, so it didn't have a price on it. So I was just kind of <laughs> guessing. Sorry about that. Um, but uh yeah, so I'm excited about that. And I think, you know, take control, but don't be scared. This book is very digestible. And if you are somebody who is like most of us who thinks their parents uh, may not um be making the best choices. This is a good idea for you as well to get educated if you're a younger person. So, all right. I want to thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. There you have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. Or leave us a rating on iTunes as it really helps us get some notoriety. As some of you know already, myself and my colleagues are passionate about preventing future violence in the United States. We have started a nonprofit called the National Violence Prevention Hotline, which is a 501c3 organization. We are endeavoring to gain funding and collaborators that we can start a 24-7 hotline and chat line to reach potential perpetrators before they act violently. It is a bold effort to curb violence and save innocent lives by working to connect with potential offenders while they are in the planning stages of violence, help to de-escalate them, and provide resources so that they can get appropriate professional help wherever they live. The National Violence Prevention Hotline is looking to open up a conversation about violence in society, the causes, and the solutions. You can learn more by visiting our website, violencepreventionhotline.org. Join us by signing our petition, sharing the website with your network, donating to the cause, and now you can even write your congressperson from our website. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you are an independent therapist or a small group practice or even a large group practice and you have a billing company that you're not satisfied with, check out Therapist Billing Services. That's www.therapistbillingservicesllc.com. This is Therapist Billing Services created by therapists. If you are looking for an EMDR, International Association Consultant, I am now an EMDR, International Association Consultant, and I can provide 20 hours that you need to become EMDRIA certified. I have consultation groups both online and in person. Check out my website, healthforlifegr.com, and send me a message. If you want to get trained in EMDR therapy and are looking for some great advanced EMDR therapy trainings, check out EMDR Training Solutions and register today. They are now back to doing in-person trainings. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids area at Health for Life Counseling and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest, and while these are based upon the literature they have read and their experience in the respective fields, these should not be viewed as the definitive opinions on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in a crisis, please dial 911 right now or the National Suicide Crisis Hotline at 988. 
You can also text 741741 and a live trained crisis counselor will respond. You can support your local bookstore by shopping at www.bookshop.org. You can order online from the comfort of your own home while supporting local businesses near you. If you are a therapist and you are not a member of your local counseling or therapy association, please join. We have to make sure our industry is not turned into gig work. We have to make sure that people get quality mental health services wherever they live, and we need to be able to integrate them into schools and businesses and wherever else the needs are. All right, until next time, I'm wishing you all a safe and peaceful week.